Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. This week's lesson is week number 23, Numbers chapter 19. Well, last week, we discussed holiness. And I'm not sure that I'm more at a loss for words, which is a rare thing, or feel less adequate than when discussing holiness. It's a much more expansive and controversial issue than one might have thought. What makes it controversial is not that the Bible doesn't give us sufficient, detailed, and consistent information that that well defines the essence and operation of holiness, but rather it's that men have chosen to ignore and disregard entire sections of the Bible and take only from the remainder their definitions for most things, holiness being one of them. So the concept of holiness has been greatly watered down and frankly made passive. Now, how did it strike you to learn that Numbers and Exodus and Leviticus as well explains this proposition that holiness and uncleanness can be transferred from a person to an object, from an object to another object, and from a person to a person by physical contact. Or that holiness is dangerous. Or that only some people are authorized to have holiness, and that those who are not authorized to have it are subject to grave consequences if they go ahead and contract holiness anyway. This is a hard teaching. Now let me remind you that we were reading this from the Bible, not somebody's commentary. It's there in full living color, blunt, unequivocal. It's really a matter of whether we're going to stand up and accept it or not. But be forewarned, we've not yet learned all the Bible has to say about holiness. Nor does holiness stand alone as an attribute of God. Other factors like his omniscience, justice, mercy, forgiveness, salvation, wrath, just to name a few, play roles and all work together in God. God never acts one-dimensionally. That is, only in justice, only in mercy, or only in wrath, or only in love. Yet there's no way to understand each of these aspects of the Lord without untangling them a little bit and then isolating them and examining them as best we can. And while holiness is simply asserted as a fact in the New Testament, where we're going to find holiness explained and defined is in the Old Testament, primarily in the Torah. Now, because of the era the church has been immersed in for almost 2,000 years, an era that I think is drawing to a close, the mission of the church has generally been to grow through evangelizing. And the job has been done overall quite well. Unfortunately, What seems to have suffered along the way is the maturation process. Paul calls it the perfection, the perfecting rather, of the individual believer. Those who wish to move forward in a deeper faith and knowledge haven't had a lot of encouragement or support. It's a little like a community with a burgeoning population that's focused on building excellent new elementary schools for the children. But as the children matriculated through each elementary grade, so many resources were spent on that elementary level that the community neglected to build a high school. So at some point, there was no choice but to repeat the same educational material 
over and over again, perhaps in a slightly different form and style, in what passed for deeper enlightenment. The 15-year-old effectively sits in the same classroom with the 10-year-old, hearing the elementary school level curriculum yet again. The elementary material is not wrong. It's not defective. But neither does it challenge and advance the child to the next level that's needed. As applied to believers, this process means that we get stunted in our growth. Yet graduating into higher education brings with it its own sets of set of anxieties and problems. You know, when we were children, the rules were black and white, hard and fast. Instructions were basic. There was little room allowed or tolerated, and rightly so, for children to make value judgments on their own. Because first, the foundation had to be established for determining those values. Therefore, as most of us have already learned as believers, the basics of God's plan of salvation, who Jesus is, what he expects of us, what seems to lie ahead in the future, it's natural for us to leave behind the comforts of knowing but the primary colors, if you would, and to turn our attention to the more difficult hues and tones of our faith. The difficulty is that the black and white edges that we were so used to begin to blur the more you learn. The answers are not always apparent and succinct. Faith is a whole lot easier in black and white than it is as we advance. That's why it is said that we must come to Jesus in the beginning as little children. Okay. We must be willing to begin with the basics and accept them as the truth that they are with little questioning. But later, we are fully expected to embrace the struggle to advance in God's wisdom and understanding. Because it's this struggle, it's this struggle that keeps us glued to God and actually moving forward. In the consideration of our current topic tonight, holiness, we find that it's a whole lot easier to simply look holy than to be holy. The problem with holiness is that while it is intrinsic To God's character, it sure isn't to ours. Men are only truly holy when God is near and he endows us with his holiness. Now, it's not as though some effort on our part to attain and maintain holiness isn't needed. It is. But the effort is to be aimed at trusting God and His plan, not making our own way. Korah, Dathan, and Avaram, and all their followers, made a supreme effort. But the effort was in opposition to God's plan. Even though a measure of holiness was indeed attained by them, Because God's holiness is so powerful that its mere proximity will automatically infect whatever is near to it. It was not attained in accordance with his plan. Therefore, God's attribute of his justice necessarily came into play. And according to God's justice, those rebels who attained this unauthorized holiness against his rules and against his ordinances, felt his wrath. And what happened to them? They were destroyed. On the other hand, the priests, who had been set apart, and they were authorized to have a measure of holiness from God, 
had attained that holiness legitimately. So they were safe. Now we're going to veer away from this holiness topic for for a time. And in Numbers chapter 19, we're going to find an intriguing discussion about a specific type of impurity and what to do about it. Recall that impure and unclean is basically the same thing. So as we leave the issue now of holiness for a while, just keep this in mind. The holiness that's inside of you is God. He put himself there. You didn't put him there. Further, that holiness can be defiled. The advent of Yeshua did not change how holiness operates. It's our job as disciples of Yeshua to see to it that His holiness that is housed within this temporary and imperfect sanctuary that's our body is protected. And the beginning of doing that is to learn about what holiness is according to the Bible. Because of the evangelical church's renewed interest in in, in prophetic happenings and, and the end times, most of us have at least heard of the red heifer. And And a group of Jews' constant search for the perfect one. This special red-colored cow is needed when the long-hoped-for temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. Well, here in Numbers 19, that we're going to read in a minute, is where the purpose and the details of the red heifer ritual are pronounced. Now, although we must go through several verses of the ritual procedure before we're told about its purpose, it turns out that it's all about decontaminating a person who has become unclean because they touched a human corpse. Okay? So, open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 19, and we're going to read it all. It's a fairly short chapter. It's on page 171 of your complete Jewish Bible. Numbers chapter 19. Adonai said to Moshe and Aharon, This is the regulation from the Torah which Adonai has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a young red female cow without fault or defect and which has never borne a yoke. You are to give it to Eleazar the Kohen. He is to be, it is to be brought outside the camp and slaughtered in front of him. Eleazar, the Kohen is to take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle this blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. The heifer is to be burned to ashes before his eyes. Its skin, its meat, blood, even its dung is to be burned to ashes. The Kohen is to take cedar wood, oregano, scarlet, scarlet yarn, throw them onto the heifer as it's burning. Then the Kohen is to wash his clothes and himself in water, after which he may re-enter the camp. But the priest will remain unclean until evening. The person who burned up the heifer is to wash his clothes and himself in water, but he will remain unclean until evening. A man who is clean is to collect the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. They are to be kept for the community of the people of Israel to prepare water for purification from sin. The one who collected the ashes of the heifer is to wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. For the people of Israel and for the foreigner staying with them, this will be a permanent regulation. Anyone who touches a corpse, no matter whose dead body it is, will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with these ashes on the third and seventh day. Then he'll be clean. But if he does not purify himself the third and seventh days, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, no matter whose dead body it is, and does not purify himself, has defiled the tabernacle 
of Adonai. That person will be cut off from Israel because the water for purification was not sprinkled on him. He will be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law. When a person dies in a tent, everyone who enters the tent, everything in the tent will be unclean for seven days. Every open container without a cover closely attached is unclean. And whoever is in an open field and touches a corpse, whether of someone killed by a weapon or of someone who died naturally or even the bone of a person or a grave will be unclean for seven days. For the unclean person, they are to take some of the ashes of the animal burned up as a purification from sin and add them to fresh water in a container. A clean person is to take a bunch of oregano leaves, dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent, on all the containers, on the people who were there, on the person who touched the bone, or the person killed, or the one who died naturally, or the grave. The clean person will sprinkle the unclean person on the third and seventh days. On the seventh day he will purify him, then he will wash his clothes and himself in water, and he will be clean at evening. The person who remains unclean and does not purify himself will be cut off from the community, because he has defiled the sanctuary of Adonai. The water for purification has not been sprinkled on him. He's unclean. This is to be a permanent regulation for them. The person who sprinkles the water for purification is to wash his clothes. Whoever touches the water for purification will be unclean until evening. Anything the unclean person touches will be unclean. And anyone who touches him will be unclean until evening. Well, so much of what we just read in this chapter and the previous ones about these elaborate rituals cannot help but seem to us moderns is some kind of mumbo-jumbo, sorcery, stuff we might expect some deep jungle tribe of the Brazilian rainforest to do. And that's because we have set aside ritual as unimportant, and it's unneeded, and some regard it even as unintelligent. We don't see its value anymore. In fact, we really don't much like it. And we're not at all comfortable even talking about it. But contained within biblical ritual is the visual picture of what's happening in the invisible realm. Believe me, long before the church was around, rabbis and sages struggled with the words to explain just why ritual was performed and what actually occurred during these sacred procedures. They wondered about these things, just like we do. Did the blood and the body parts of sacrificed animals actually take on supernatural qualities? Did sacred procedures done in exactly the right way in order to create magic-like effects upon the people of Israel? Does bathing in water and saying the right words at the right time actually react with our flesh and our souls so as to remove whatever it is that has contaminated us and offended God? So, as important as this chapter of Numbers and its details is, so is the need for us to take another step in understanding the biblical principles surrounding ritual impurity. Now, I'd like to begin this subject by quoting a brief story from the Talmud about a famous rabbi who was asked to explain this very issue that I've just framed before you. And here's the story, taken straight out of the Talmud. A heathen questioned Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, famous rabbi, saying, The things you Jews do appear to be kind of a sorcery. A cow is brought, it's burned up, it's pounded into ash, and its ash is all gathered up. Then when one of you gets defiled by contact with a corpse, two or three drops 
of the ash mixed with water sprinkled upon him and he's told, okay, you're cleansed. And Rabban Yochanan asked the heathen, has the spirit of madness ever possessed you? And he replied, no. And the rabbi said, have you ever seen a man whom the spirit of madness possessed? And the heathen replied, yes. And the rabbi replied, uh, and the rabbi said, and what did you do for such a man? And the heathen replied, well, roots are brought, and the smoke of their burning is made to rise up about him, and then water sprinkled upon him until the spirit of madness flees from him. And Rabbi Yochanan then said, do not your ears hear what your mouth is saying? It is the same with a man who is defiled by contact with a corpse. He too is possessed with the spirit, the spirit of uncleanness. And scriptures say, I will make false prophets as well as the unclean spirit vanish from the land. Now when the heathen left, Rabban Yochanan's disciples said, Our master, you put that heathen off with a mere read of an answer. But what answer will you give to us? And Rabban Yochanan answered, By your lives, I swear, the corpse does not have the power by itself to defile. Nor does that mixture of ash and water have any power by itself to cleanse. The truth is that the purifying power of the red cow is but a decree from the Holy One. The Holy One said, I have set it down as a statute, I have issued it, is a decree, you are not permitted to transgress my decree. This is the ritual law. In essence, the rabbi is saying, you know what, I'm not entirely sure how this whole thing works. But I know that the cow has no magical power in itself. I know that a corpse can't inherently defile anybody. In the end, we do this red cow purification procedure because God said to do it. And if we do so, he will then count us as purified and is not permitted to do it any other way. So the good rabbi is denying that any kind of sorcery is involved. He readily admits that it all sure looks like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. Right? But it's not. And part of the reason it's not is he says that God has said that he has banished unclean spirits from the land of Israel, so it's impossible that a contaminated man could even have an unclean spirit in him. But what throws the rabbi off, though it's not easily seen in this Talmudic story, is that there is a very strange paradox in Numbers chapter 19 about the workings of the red heifer's ashes upon the defiled man who has touched a corpse. Let's take a close look at it, at what we call the red heifer sacrifice, and let's see just where that strange paradox lays. Now the first thing we notice in verse 2 is that the animal involved is a red cow, which we usually call a red heifer. This, of course, is a female animal. It's a young, it, it, it is young, but it's older than a yearling. And it's never been used for any kind of work. It's, that is, it's never been used for any kind of a common purpose. That's what it means by never having been yoked. This animal, of course, has to be unblemished, as are all animals destined for ritual slaughter. Now, next and most importantly, we are told that the red cow must be taken where? Outside the camp to be slaughtered. Now, this represents the first element of the paradox. This red heifer, which is to be used as the primary ingredient in an especially important purification concoction, is going to be killed in an unclean place. 
Now recall just what outside the camp means. The only ritually clean ground is where? Inside the camp. Inside the camp is where the Israelites live. In time, this area became more defined. And actual measurements, city limits, camp limits, if you would, were assigned. Do not confuse ritually clean with ritually holy. The only ritually holy ground was within the temple or tabernacle courtyard which lay at the center of the ritually clean camp. You with me? So somewhere outside the camp in an unclean place, a special altar was erected. In point of fact, Altar is probably too strong of a word. This was, for all practical purposes, a large but common wood fire mound upon which that red cow was killed and burned up. Now, the general procedure was that a priest of high order, not necessarily the high priest who, in our example, the, the priest was, was uh, Eleazar, son of Aaron, this high-order priest would accompany the red cow to the woodpile and he would officiate this ceremony. The priest would cut the throat of the cow and then gather some of its blood in the ceremonial vessel. He would then turn and face the door of the sanctuary. Here you see a picture of him. He's facing the door of the sanctuary here. Then he'd sprinkle some of that blood towards it. With his finger, he'd do this seven times in the direction of the sanctuary. Of course, he was quite some distance away. So a line of sight had to be established so that he could literally see the door of the temple, the door into the holy place, off in the distance, that first chamber inside the sanctuary. And after this entire cow, every part of it was burned up whole atop this huge bonfire, After that, while this occurred, the priest would throw on top of it cedar wood, hyssop, often called oregano, like in our complete Jewish Bibles, and a red-colored thread. All of this was to be consumed as well. In essence, the wood and the hyssop and the thread were being added to the mixture. Added to the ashes. Then completing his task, the priest had to remove his priestly garment, and then he would have to bathe in water. After putting on fresh garments, he could then re-enter the camp, but he remained in a ritually unclean state until the sun set. What's the thing about the sun setting? It's indicating the end of the current day and the beginning of the new day. Whatever assi- Whoever assisted him in this operation also had to remove and wash their garments, take a bath, and they too would remain in a state of ritual impurity until the sun went down. Next, a man who had not participated in any of this ritual up to this point, and therefore was still ritually clean, he had to go gather up those ashes. Then he put them in a designated place where they would be used to combine with water and thereby make this special purification liquid for use as it would be needed. This man, gathering the ashes, became defiled as a result of gathering those ashes. So as with all the others involved in all this, he also had to wash his clothes, take a bath, and then he remained in this unclean state until the sunset, beginning of a new day. Because the level of impurity of contact with death, usually human death, was so great, it could not only defile whomever or whatever touched it, It could even defile whomever or whatever came in just close proximity to it. However, that which came into contact with the dead body was contaminated with a greater degree of impurity than whatever just came nearby. The remedy for the impurity caused by a a dead body was this mixture of ashes of the red heifer with water. The mixture was then sprinkled onto a home or a building where that person died. 
It was also sprinkled on whomever came into contact with that dead person. The sprinkling procedure had to occur twice. The first time on the third day after the defilement, the next time on the seventh day. The defiled persons who had been properly sprinkled were then returned to a ritually pure status at the end of that seventh day, at which time they washed their clothes and bathed. Now look, this was no light matter. Anyone who had become defiled from a corpse and didn't go through this ritual procedure was to be cut off. Now we've been talked we talked about this term cut off, karet in Hebrew, and you can go to previous lessons if you want more information about it. But in a nutshell, generally a person who was karet, cut off, lost his relationship with the people of Israel. And more importantly, he lost his relationship with the God of Israel. A critical question arises. Why such a severe penalty for this? The answer for this drastic consequence is near the end of verse 20. Take a look at it. it says, the person who has been defiled by a dead body and refuses God's provision to be made clean has what? He's defiled the Lord's sanctuary. Hmm. God's holiness has been endangered. And there is nothing more high-handed than to bring defilement into the dwelling place of Jehovah. Keep that in the front of your mind as we continue because we're going to revisit it. Now, to end the chapter, we're next told that the clean person who did the sprinkling of the ash and the water mixture onto the defiled person simply by him performing this, finds himself now in an unclean state, and then must wash his clothes, take a bath, and wait until the sun goes down. Even more, anyone who is rich is currently ritually clean, this is really odd, and touches a drop of this special purification water, that makes them unclean. And whomever or whatever touches that unclean person, they become unclean. And that's the completion of the red heifer story. Now, let, let, let me begin the examination of this startling and I think pretty perplexing chapter at its end. Okay. Notice that just as in the previous chapter about holiness, that, that holiness could be inadvertently transmitted from one thing made holy to another, it's the same way with impurity. Impurely, impurity can be inadvertently transmitted from one thing made unclean to another, whether it's an object or a person. Now, I remind you what I said at the outset today. You can be uncomfortable with this. You can even not like it very much. But here it is, in black and white. This is not my interpretation. This is not Hebrew tradition. This is not human commentary. We're reading this directly from God's word, the Bible. Therefore, we're at least obligated to deal with it as it is and not simply try to wish it or allegorize it away. This has been a rather bad Christian habit about this for a few centuries. So here we go. The dictionary says that a paradox is a situation or statement that seems contradictory or unbelievable or frankly absurd. And yet, it's very likely true or factual. That's a paradox. And the paradox of this red heifer heifer sacrifice is this. Everybody that has anything to do with its preparation, the death of the cow, its burning up, the gathering of its ashes, and the making of the ritual concoction becomes unclean. Did you catch that? People who are but following God's command in this ritual law of purification begin in a clean state, but in doing this, wind up 
ritually impure. Now, on the surface, this makes no sense at all. I mean, can it be that we have Jehovah ordering some holy and or clean people to intentionally become ritually defiled? See, the unclean person, person from touching the corpse, now they get made clean from these ashes of the red heifer. But the clean persons who perform the ritual and apply the ashes, they're made unclean. And the rabbis, as the rabbis say about this procedure, the same ashes that purify the defiled, also defiled, defile the pure. I mean, how is this possible? Okay, this is so completely opposite from all of the other sacrifices and their effects. The other sacrifices atone and often make clean. Typically handling a sacrifice properly automatically brings a measure of holiness with it. In fact, the average citizen must turn his sacrifice over to the priest in order for it to be put onto the brazen altar because only a priest is holy enough to even get near the altar. Even the animal is considered holy. A considerably higher status than merely clean. The moment the worshiper determines to offer it as a sacrifice, otherwise it couldn't be even allowed into the holy precinct. So what gives here with this thing? With the red heifer? Well, one of the difficulties in grasping the red heifer sacrifice the regular sacrifices, and even the temple rituals, follow along with me now, is the real meaning of the term holy. We're back to holy again. See, the term holy in Hebrew is kodesh or kadosh. And it really simply means to be separated away, to be set apart. When my wife is getting ready to do laundry, she carefully separates types of material as well as separating light versus dark loads. If you're a man, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I know we just lump it and, you know. I got the shirts to prove it, too. Um, But she separates these things. And it's perfectly within the meaning of kadosh, or Kodesh, to apply that Hebrew term to her separating one kind of color or cloth from another. Absolutely proper use of the word. But did she make the dark load holy and the light load something else? No. See, it's the context of the use of the term Kadosh or Kodesh that matters. Is it used in a spiritual, religious context, or something else. A person could be kadosh for destruction. Set apart for destruction. Or they could be kadesh for Satan. But both of those things are negative. Remember, holy is not a Hebrew word. It's just an English word that's been chosen and applied to kind of translate Kodesh or Kadosh. You with me? Okay. It's only when something is Kadosh for God, separated away specifically for service to the Lord, that it carries with it this sense of holy as we think of holy. Thus the red heifer, again, follow me, isn't so much holy as it is simply kadosh, set apart. But it's not set apart for service to God. Like the standard, like a standard temple sacrifice, like a little goat brought up. Rather, it's set apart for destruction. But this destruction will be used by God to make his people clean. So it would be a mistake to apply the term holy as it is the thought we might have in Christianity to the red heifer. The red heifer is not made holy. You with me? 
Another key to understanding the red, hetcher, red heifer ritual is to notice that the Torah calls this kind of sacrifice in Hebrew a hata'at. Hata'at. We studied this before. If you've been studying with me for a while, this isn't the first time you've heard that term, hata'at. That is, the red heifer ritual belongs in the general classification of the hata'at category of sacrifice. Now recall that early in our Leviticus study, a long time ago, we spent a lot of time with the various classifications of sacrifices and their precise God-ordained purposes. They are deep, they're complex, so I'm only going to talk about the parts of the hata'at sacrifice that are pertinent to the red heifer ritual. Most Bible translators will render the Hebrew term hata'at as sin offering. But that is really ambiguous and it completely misses the purpose of it. Hata'at is better translated as purification offering. In other words, while it may be, may well be a sin that eventually leads to the need for purification, and therefore the hata'at, in effect, the hata'at was created to decontaminate, to purify the person. Okay. In the standard hata'at sacrifice, the flesh of the animal may not be eaten, and the animal must be burned outside the camp. Just as with our red heifer ritual. But there are significant differences between the red heifer kind of hata'at and the standard one. For instance, the blood of the red heifer is not splashed on the sides of the altar. Rather, the blood from the red heifer is to remain in the cow so that it's burned up as part of the ashes. Only a little is taken to be sprinkled towards the temple. This is because a bedrock principle of the sacrificial system is that blood is central to the whole process. The hata'at, the regular Levitical purification offering, is a most unique sacrifice because one of its effects is to make its handlers and officials impure. And of course, we find that exact thing also applying to the red heifer ritual here of Numbers 19. I mean, what a strange thing. What could possibly be the reason that God would design a sacrifice that generates impurity? Well, here's the reason for this. The sacrificial animal, in our case the red heifer, purifies by means of effectively absorbing the defiled person or object's impurities. This is just a means of thinking about it. The hot-to-hot sacrificial animal behaves like a spiritual sponge of impurity. And since the hot-to-hot sacrificial animal serves its purpose by soaking up the certain types of contamination it was meant to absorb, it thus becomes contaminated with an enormous amount of impurity, thus it must be destroyed. It is so dangerously impure that it has to be destroyed away from anything holy. It must be destroyed away from anything clean, the camp of Israel. It can't possibly be offered up on a holy altar in such a condition, and so it's destroyed far away from anything holy on a common wood fire outside the camp. In fact, Technically, the hot dog sacrifice is not something that's offered up to God. It's set apart for a purpose. It's Kodesh for a purpose. But that purpose is not to be set apart for God. Only things specifically set apart for God can be offered to the Lord. The concept of set apart for a common purpose versus set apart for God also comes into play with the use of the fire 
the actual fire that's used to burn up the animal. The fire of the brazen altar at the temple is a positive kind of fire that transforms and purifies because it's used to offer up smoke to the Lord. The common wood fire that consumes the red heifer is only meant to destroy. Its object is to get rid of whatever is put onto it because it's now dangerous and defiled, not unlike the burning up of medical waste. We recently discussed that God's holiness is so powerful, like unsealed nuclear radiation, that everything that comes near to it gets irradiated with holiness and so attains a measure of holiness itself. It's the same kind of effect with the red cow that becomes so full of the worst sorts of impurity from soaking up that defilement from others that everything that comes near it, every object, every human becomes irradiated with uncleanness. Now let me point out something else quite unique about this red heifer sacrifice. It's not the one who performs the ritual sacrifice that receives its benefit. In fact, it's the same way for any hot-to-hot kind of sacrifice. The blood of the animal is not used to purify the worshiper or to atone for him. That is, the regular hot-to-hot sacrifice, the blood of that animal is splashed on the altar and in certain instances on other sanctuary furnishings because the animal blood is performing a purification function. In the red heifer sacrifice, the blood of the animal becomes part of the ashes. And then when all that's mixed with water, it winds up being splashed on the person who is in need of uh, decontamination and purification. In other words... The foundational purpose of the standard hot-to-odd sacrifice is to use the blood of the animal for the purpose of purifying the sanctuary, the tabernacle, or the temple, and all of its sacred objects. That's what it's for. It's not used to purify the one who brings the offering, nor is it even offered up to God. Okay, let me put a couple of pieces together for you. Recall again what it says in verse 20. That if anyone does not purify themselves with this red heifer ashes mixed with water from the uncleanness of death, because of touching a dead body, what happens to them? They're cut off. They'll have their relationship with the congregation of Israel and their relationship with God terminated. Why? Why this severe of a penalty? Because the consequence of a person contracting uncleanness of a corpse is that it defiles God's sanctuary. That's the problem. It is the defilement of God's sanctuary that's the largest issue, and therefore it is the defilement of God's sanctuary that has to be remedied. Bottom line to all this. The ashes of the red heifer, when mixed with living water, are designed to purify the sanctuary of God. And it has long been understood within Judaism that the people of God are in some mysterious way also sanctuaries of God. This is not a new Christian invention. That is the only use for the red heifer ashes. No wonder the good rabbi in our story from the Talmud had such a hard time explaining just why ashes that were obviously meant to purify the temple of God were for some elusive reason also used in a ritual to purify a human being from the worst kind of contamination there is, contact with death. 
the rabbi did not understand what we now know in hindsight. That eventually, once the Messiah had finished giving up his life to atone for ours, that God would abandon the sanctuary that men had made for him and make men themselves his new sanctuary in a fully literal way. Hallelujah. The ritual picture that emerges here is to connect the sanctuary of God with men. Are we not told that we as believers are now the temple of God? And indeed, does not the Holy Spirit, who is God, literally live within these fragile tents that we call bodies? Then these tents must be purified and cleansed to be suitable for God to dwell here. Further, just like for the ancient tabernacle and temple, simply being in proximity to people, in contact with people, existing in a defiled world, means that the sanctuary is going to be constantly under the bombardment of impurity. Therefore, a regular purging of all these impurities is mandatory. Recall Yeshua's crucifixion. When the Roman soldier wanted to determine if Jesus was actually dead or just passed out, he reached up with a spear and he pierced his side. And what flowed out? Blood and water. Blood we would expect. Why water? Because blood atones, but water purifies. That is a spiritual principle. Both actions are needed for us. Blood removes sin, but water purifies. Two different things. Two different spiritual elements, but Yeshua was sufficient for both. What was the purification mixture of Numbers chapter 19? Essentially, blood and water. The blood was in the ashes of the heifer, mixed with the water of purification, and applied to the person who was contaminated with death. We'll move into a whole other area of this next time.